0: An atheist responds to a Christian, Part One. So, a YouTuber with the channel name Repent and Believe in Jesus just left a comment below a video I recently published entitled "An Atheist Response to Criticism." Their comment basically consists of a long list of questions, apparently intended to function as a challenge to the atheistic worldview. And I want to thank the person up front for at least being civil and not attacking me personally. I'm kind of emotionally exhausted from doing that last response to criticism video and don't really feel like getting bogged down in another nasty online feud just yet. But I am in the mood to flex my analytical muscle, so I think I'll work my way down your laundry list and tackle your claims one by one. So first up they say, Why can't we recreate a rainbow indoors without glass or a mirror? Well, if I was going to simply be a wise-ass, I would say, well, a rainbow is an outdoor weather phenomenon that requires certain meteorological conditions. It's almost like asking, why doesn't it snow indoors? But before I research the topic and give a responsible and informed answer, I'll hazard to guess that if what they're saying is true and you need a mirror or glass to recreate a rainbow indoors, it probably has something to do with needing those things to simulate natural light refraction, or something like that. I don't think you need God to explain why you might need certain objects or scientific equipment to emulate an effect found in nature. So I'm back through the magic of editing. I just browsed several articles on the science of rainbows, and they all pretty much offer the same explanation on how they form. But I'm going to go with one I found on a site called photocentric.net because I thought their explanation was nice and concise, nice and concise, and yet still very informative. Here's what it says. Two physical phenomena are at work within a rainbow. Refraction and reflection. Refraction occurs each time light passes across a boundary from one substance to another, such as from air into water. As light crosses the boundary, the rays bend at different angles depending on the wavelength, color of light. This is the familiar prism effect, wherein, quote-unquote, white sunlight is broken into a spectrum of different colors, from red to blue-violet. The same thing that happens in a rainbow white sunlight enters a raindrop and is broken into different colors heading in slightly different directions. The light is then reflected and magnified off the back of the raindrop and passes back into the air again, in the process being further refracted. Okay, so we've established how a rainbow forms, And then I also found numerous articles, many from educational sites or geared towards kids, regarding how you can make your own rainbow at home. Most of them utilize things like a glass of water or bubbles. So there you have it. I'm still not seeing any evidence of the supernatural or the divine here. All I'm seeing is scientific and atmospheric principles at work. You might argue that God created nature, so nature and scientific principles in themselves are evidence of God. But that's pure speculation. Show me concrete proof that some higher power or personal creator god exists. So next on the list, why was there lunar eclipses on Jewish festival days last year? Well, off the cuff, I might say coincidence, or maybe it has something to do with the design or pattern of the calendar. Here's a little background on the Jewish calendar from a site called, and I kid you not, JewFact.com. And no, I don't think it's being pejorative or disparaging. I think that's just the domain name, and it's a pro-Jewish site, and the homepage is entitled Judaism 101. The Jewish calendar is based on three astronomical phenomena, the rotation of the Earth about its axis, a day, the revolution of the moon about the Earth, a month, and the evolution of the Earth about the sun, a year. These three phenomena are independent of each other, so there is no direct correlation between them. On average, the moon revolves around the earth in about 29 and a half days. The earth revolves around the sun in about 365 and a quarter days, that is, about 12.4 lunar months. The civil calendar used by most of the world has abandoned any correlation between the moon cycles and the month, arbitrarily setting the length of months to 28 days. 30 or 31 days. The Jewish calendar, however, coordinates all three of these astronomical phenomena. Months are either 29 or 30 days, corresponding to the 29 and a half day lunar cycle. Years are either 12 or 13 months, corresponding to the 12.4 month solar cycle. The lunar month on a Jewish calendar begins when the first sliver of moon becomes visible after the dark of the moon. In ancient times, the new months used to be determined by observation. When people observed the new moon, they would notify the Sanhedrin. When the Sanhedrin heard testimony from two independent, reliable eyewitnesses that the new moon occurred on a certain date, they would declare the Chodesh, or Kodesh, hope I'm not butchering that, first of the month and send out messengers to tell people when the month began. The problem with the strictly lunar calendars is that there are approximately 12.4 lunar months in every solar year. So a 12-month lunar calendar is about 11 days shorter than a solar year, and a 13-month lunar is about 19 longer than a solar year. The months drift around the seasons on such a calendar. On a 12-month lunar calendar, the month of Nisan, which is supposed to occur in the spring, would occur 11 days earlier in the season each year, eventually occurring in the winter, the fall, the summer, and then the spring again. On a 13-month lunar calendar, the same thing would happen in the other direction and faster. Okay, so we can already see that obviously the calendar was designed to follow the lunar cycle. So it shouldn't surprise us if important holy days on the calendar correspond with lunar events. And then I did some research to try to find out why this person might be interested in the subject of lunar eclipses and the Jewish calendar in the first place. And it turns out that controversial pastor John Hagee, along with someone named Mark Blitz, came up with something called the Blood Moon Prophecy. Sounds scary. Here's a brief paragraph from Wikipedia. The Blood Moon Prophecy is a series of Apocalyptic Beliefs Promoted by Christian Ministers John Hagee and Mark Blitz, which state that a tetrad, a series of four consecutive lunar eclipses coinciding on Jewish holidays with six full moons in between and no intervening partial lunar eclipses, which began with April 2014 lunar eclipses, is a sign of the end times as described in the Bible. In Acts 2.20 and Revelation 6.12, the tetrad ended with the lunar eclipse on September 27th through the 28th of 2015. So in fairness, it does seem that there was indeed a series of lunar eclipses that coincided with certain Jewish holy days. But as common sense caused me to pause it earlier, it it turns out that this is to be expected based on the nature of the calendar. I'll read a paragraph concerning a statement from Earth and Sky. Haggy and Blitz's speculations gained mainstream media attention in publications such as USA Today and The Washington Post. Earth and Sky reported receiving a number of inquiries about the blood moon, prompting a response. According to Christian Today, only a small group of Christians saw the eclipse as significant. Writing for Earth and Sky, Bruce McClure and Deborah Byrd point out that the reference verse also says the, and in quotes, sun will be turned into darkness, an apparent reference to a solar eclipse. They note that since the Jewish calendar is lunar, one-sixth of all eclipses will occur during Passover or Sukkot or Sarkat, I'm probably butchering that too. If I have any um, Jewish listeners and you're fluent in uh, Hebrew, please let me know. Furthermore, there have been 62 tetrads since the first century A.D., though only eight of them have coincided with both feasts. Thus, the event is not as unusual as Haggai and Blitz imply. Additionally, three of the four eclipses in the Tetrid were not even visible in the biblical homeland of Israel, casting further doubt on Haggai and Blitz's interpretation. Even then, only the very end of the last eclipse was visible in Israel. Writing for Space.com, Jeff Garrity said he was saddened that prophets of doom view these life-enriching events as portents of disaster and said the eclipse was hardly something to be concerned about. In January 2015, Mike Moore, the then General Secretary of Christian Witness to Israel, wrote a lengthy article dismissing the claims of Blitz and Hagee. Moore's view was that no significance can be drawn from the eclipse. And I should mention that Blitz apparently predicted the Second Coming would take place in the fall of 2015, following the Great Tribulation, which he predicted would begin in 2008. Obviously, the prophecy, like all end-times prophecies from antiquity to modern times, was a dud. Fear not. The world will end someday. 99%—or at least for us—99% of all the myriad species that have ever existed are now extinct. And I don't think in the long run will prove to be any exception. Eventually, if we don't wipe ourselves out first through warfare, exploitation of resources, climate change, etc., nature or a hostile cosmos will probably do us in. And furthermore, no matter what, and ain't this a bummer, each one of us frail, finite beings will inevitably face our own personal end of the world via natural causes, old age, disease, etc., or through some unlucky accident, natural disaster, or being on the wrong end of man's inhumanity to man. Keep chasing rainbows and don't forget to smile. This is the end of an atheist response to a Christian, part one.